Good morning, Overlake. My name is Rory, and I'm one of the pastors on the team here. And let me be uh, not the first, but maybe the second or the third to say happy Father's Day to all the daddies out there. Now, this is my third or fourth opportunity to actually share on Father's Day. And usually what I do is uh, show some pictures of my kids. And so that's what we're going to do today. I'm going to show some pictures of my kids. Uh, here is Judah and Isaiah. Oh, my goodness. And I know what you're all thinking right now. They are way cuter than my kids. That's what, that's what you're thinking. I get it. I get it. And you'd be right, you know. Um, so uh, the, there's some other crazy news in the Eldridge household, actually. And that is that there was apparently a buy one, get one free special on kiddos because um, we're having twin baby girls this October. So super pumped and excited about that. One of our students uh, came up to me just last week in the hallway and said, wow, Rory, four kids. Um, you do know how that happens, don't you? I, I looked him right in the eye and I said, yeah, dude, I, I do know how that happens. First, you turn the lights down a little bit, put on a little usher, you know, set the mood. But I digress. I digress. Moving on. Neely, where are you? You, you told me that was going to land. Anyways. That joke did not land, apparently. Let's just move on, pray, and jump into the message. Uh, let's bow your heads. Let's pray. Jesus, Lord, thank you so, so much for being in this place this morning. God, we ask uh, that your word, as we open it up, it would be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We pray that today our theology would turn into a biography and we would walk out of this place to change people ready to be light in this dark world. Lord, we love you, and it's in your name we pray. And everybody said... Amen. I want to start by kind of sharing a story that's going to lay a foundation for where we're heading. And if you're in student ministries, you've heard the story a thousand times, but it's really captured my heart over the last eight or nine months. And it's the story of a guy named A.W. Milne. A.W. Milne was uh, part of a band of brothers and sisters known as the One Way Missionaries. Uh, what these folks would do is literally hop onto a boat and rather than packing their belongings in suitcases, they would pack their belongings in coffins and they would head to far off distant lands to preach the gospel and be the gospel. A.W. Milne was a part of this group and he did hop on a boat and he did pack his belongings in a coffin because he knew where he was going. Everybody who had gone before him had been killed, but he was going, compelled by the Spirit to go to this small set of islands in the South Pacific and give his life to the people there. Well, by God's grace, he did not end up losing his life right as he stepped off the ship. No, he actually spent 35 years ministering to the people of that small island. And he loved them with everything that he had. And he preached the gospel and he was the gospel to those people. In fact, so much so that when he did die after 35 years, they took his body, they buried him in the center of that small little island and they wrote this on his tombstone. And this is what gets me every single time I recount this story. They said, when he came, there was no light. But when he left, there was no darkness. When he came, there was no light. But when he left, there was no darkness. Now, every time I recount that story, something inside of me just screams, yes, that's what I want my life to be about. And my guess is you wouldn't mind if somebody wrote similar words about you. In fact, I've prayed to God, would those be words that somebody might be able to say about me 
at the end of my life. But the question is, what fuels that kind of life? How, how do we get there? How do we collectively and then individually get to this place? How, how do we live a life that's worthy of those kind of words? Well, I found out the answer is really quite simple, but it's not easy. It's quite simple, but it's not easy. And this morning we launch into week two of a teaching series called Be the Church. And if you were here last week, you might remember that Pastor Pat walked us through the book of Galatians. And then he also introduced us to this big idea known as the temple model. And I want to do a quick little recap of the temple model. There are three components to the temple model. The first being this. There are sacred texts. There's a sacred text. And this temple model thing, this is simply a model that describes how all religions work, how they're formed and how they function. From the Egyptians to the Assyrians to more modern day movements, all religions can find themselves underneath this umbrella. And it starts with a sacred text. There's a scroll, a book, a document that holds the code of life and instructions on all the do's and don'ts. And it's not actually to be messed with. Why? Because it's sacred. And these sacred texts are then entrusted to only a select few who seem to have the corner of the market on its correct interpretation. Of, and then, then these are known as the sacred teachers. So there's a sacred text and then there's sacred teachers. And these sacred teachers, because they are sacred, they cannot actually be questioned or disciplined. And so these sacred teachers then provide the sacred interpretation of the sacred text to those who desire to become devoted, sincere, or dare I even say superstitious followers. But then the trifecta of the temple model is not complete until you locate yourself in a sacred temple. There's a sacred text, there's sacred teachers, and then there's a sacred temple. And this is the third part of the equation. It's a temple or a building or a plot of land or a holy rock or a hill or a mountaintop or a river. But wherever it is, it's a place, and I mean the place where you come to connect with God. And so as long as you are under the sacred teachers who interpret the sacred, sacred text and devote yourself to living out the sacred practices, then you will be a fully devoted disciple. Then you will be right with God. But here's the reality. 2,000 years ago, when Jesus entered into human history, he did not come on a mission to establish another temple model. He didn't come to establish temple model 2.0. No, 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 no. He came to establish something entirely different, something brand new. He came to establish the Jesus model i.e. his church. That's what he came to establish. And it's not a temple model. It's something brand new. But then you ask the question, well, what separates the temple model from the Jesus model, his church? Well, let's dive in. If you're taking notes, you can write this first thing down. We're going to focus in on the temple model. The temple model, the temple model, this is what separates the temple model and the Jesus model. The temple model is all about me. The temple model is all about me. And I need you to track with me for a moment. You see, there's something inherent in the temple model. And what's inherent in the temple model is that it always gravitates towards rules and rituals. 
The temple model always gravitates towards rules and rituals. And in his letter to the church in Galatia, the Apostle Paul writes what some theologians describe as his declaration of independence from the temple model. Now, his audience is a group of Jewish brothers and sisters who have come to faith in Jesus, but they've been steeped in temple model religion their entire lives. And because of that, it's so hard for them. In fact, they're finding themselves holding on to this old religion, and it's actually holding them back. And that's why Paul writes these words in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. These are familiar words if you've been around church. He says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by this yoke of slavery. What is this yoke of slavery that Paul is talking about? What is this thing that's weighing them down, holding them hostage? Well, it's temple model religion. In specific, it's the Jewish religious system. And if you know anything about the Jewish religious system, you know that it is steeped. It is chock full of rules and rituals. To paint a picture, in Paul's time, the Jews had 630 laws that they had to abide by. And if that wasn't enough, a few hundred years after Paul's death, they added some more. In specific, they added Sabbath laws. Uh, the Sabbath is a holy day, and they added laws to make sure that it stayed holy. But they went to extreme lengths to make sure that this Sabbath day, this holy day, was set apart, and there was no work. There was only rest. And I want to just unpack just a few of these laws to give you an idea of the extreme lengths of these rules, these laws the Jews followed. Here's number one. If you were a tailor, you must put your needle down a half hour before Sabbath, lest it inadvertently still be in your pocket, and then you would be guilty of working on the Sabbath. That was one of their laws. Another one, one must not kill a fly or a bug on the Sabbath, since that's a form of hunting, and hunting is a form of work. And if you were to break that law, you would be breaking God's law. Here's a third one. One must not drag a chair across the floor on the Sabbath since that would stir up dust and that would be a form of plowing. And that would be work. And thus you would be breaking the law. Now we laugh and we snicker, but what I find so interesting about these extreme, even outlandish examples is that somehow folks following these laws, they thought that by following these laws, it made them right with God. Friends, that's exactly what temple thinking does. It always leads you towards rules and rituals. And it leaves you asking this question. This is the temple model question. I want you to write this down. The temple model question is, what must I do to be made right with God? What must I do to be made right with God? Now, this is actually a great question. This is a phenomenal question initially, but not eventually. Because eventually in your Christian faith, you have to move beyond what's in it for me. Because as Christ followers, we believe that once you place your faith in Christ, you are good with God and God is good with you. Let me illustrate this really quickly. There was a little boy, and this is a true story. He, he lived uh, in Southern Florida. And one day he was out 
in his backyard and there's this little pond and a little dock that goes out over the little pond. And he was just enjoying a beautiful day in the sun. His dad was behind him mowing the lawn. And he's playing with his G.I. Joes and his sister's Barbies and he just having a wonderful day, so much fun. And he's just enjoying the sun and eventually he just kind of lays back on the dock and he's dangling his little toes in the water. And then this beautiful scene all of a sudden turns horrific. All of a sudden, dad mowing the lawn hears these shrieks, these screams. He turns around, he whips around, he looks at the pond and there's his little son thrashing in the water. What had happened is there had been an alligator in that pond and that alligator had grabbed a hold of Johnny's feet and grabbed him and pulled him into the pond. Well, like any good dad, in a moment, he bolts to the scene. He jumps in the water. He grabs Johnny. He starts a tug of war. It feels like forever, but in reality, it's just a few seconds and he pulls his son from that alligator. We don't even know why the alligator opened his mouth. He was confused. He was scared, but the alligator opened his mouth and they were able to pull Johnny out of the pond. The neighbors heard what was happening. And so they sent ambulances and the ambulances came. They got him all hooked up and took him to the doctor. And after nine, 10 different surgeries, Johnny was actually able to make a full recovery. But fast forward now 25 years. Johnny is now a father himself. And he and his son make a trip to Johnny's old home in Southern Florida. And they walk through the front door and they walk through the home. They make their way to the backyard, then onto that little deck overlooking the pond. And as they're on the dock, he looks at his son and he begins to recount this story, the story of this horrific day. And he starts by lifting up his jeans and showing the scars and the marks from the alligator bites. But he's, he tells that story. He then looks at his son and says, well, Johnny, what's amazing about this is that these scars on my legs aren't actually the worst ones. And then he pulls up his shirt sleeves and he points down to his wrists and he says, these are actually the worst scars and they're not even from the alligator. They're from my dad. My dad had jumped into that pond and he had grabbed my arms and he pulled with all he had. See, my scars tell a story, son. They tell a story of my dad's relentless love for me. Well, friends, we have a father who relentlessly loves us as well. And interestingly enough, his scars also tell a story. See, there's this God, we know him as Jesus. He stepped off his throne in heaven. He entered human history and then he lived a life that none of us could live and then died a death that none of us could die. Why? Because he was perfect. And at the age of 33, after three years of roller coaster ministry, he stapled himself to a cross in our place for our sins in order that we could be made right with God if we would simply trust in him. After he was stapled to the cross, he was buried in a borrowed grave. And this is the climax of the story. Three days later, he rose again, defeating Satan, sin, and death for all time. And the Bible declares if we will simply trust in what Jesus has done for us on the cross, we will be saved and we will be made right with God. So friends, here's what I want you to know in this place. Here's how we tie this into the temple model. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, 
you need to understand this. God is good with you. In fact, would you repeat that with me? In fact, just say these words. Say, God is good with me. One more time. Let's get that a little bit better this time. God is good with me. If you have trusted in Jesus, God is good with you. So then, to spend the rest of your life going back to this temple thinking, going back to these rules and regulations, asking the question, what must I do to be right with God? It will only hold you back because while it's a great question initially, it's not eventually, and it stunts your maturity and it stunts your growth in your walk with Jesus. See, temple thinking says you got to do do, do. You got to follow this rule. You got to follow this regulation in order to be made right with God. And God says, no, it's already been done. It's been paid for. Now, because temple thinking is all about rules and rituals, because temple thinking leads us to try to figure out exactly what we must do to be made right with God, temple thinking also leads us to loophole thinking. Temple, leads, temple thinking leads us to exception to the rule thinking. Again, this is why we sometimes ask the question, how close to sin can I get without actually ticking God off, without actually sinning? Because ultimately, it's all about me. It's all about me getting what I want without losing God's blessing or favor. And so then what happens? Well, rituals. Rituals then become escape clauses, which ultimately produces hypocrites. And this is why some of you hate church. This is why some of you won't go to church because you've actually met too many Christians. And your experiences was that they talk a good talk. They get all dressed up. They go somewhere on Sunday. But when you watch them during the week, it somehow doesn't bother them how they treat other people. And then they show up at church on Sunday and they want you to go to their church. And you're thinking, wait a second. I treat people better than they do, and they call themselves Christian. I, I don't think this whole church thing is making much of a difference. And that's because as long as you think temple, as long as you sprinkle just a little bit of temple model into your Christianity cup, at some point along the way, you will lean into, God, what must I do? What must I I believe to get your attention, keep your attention and make you happy. And whether you realize it or not, your relationship with God has become self-centered and all about me. Now, it's really easy to be critical when we talk about the temple model, but the reality is there's a little bit of temple model in all of us. And so what I want to do right now is do a little self-evaluation. How many of you have heard of a redneck test? Heard of redneck test? Say something like this. If you've ever seen a sign that says, say no to crack, and it reminds you to pull your jeans up, you might be a redneck, right? If you've ever gone to a school where the fight song was dueling banjos, you might be a redneck, right? Or my favorite one, if you've ever looked upon a family reunion as an opportunity to meet Mrs. Wright, you might be a redneck. So, so we're going to do a little something along those lines, but this is the, the temple model test. And I just want to see if you can identify with this a little bit. If you've ever wondered how close to a particular sin you can get without actually sinning, you might be trapped in temple model thinking. 
If you've ever felt guiltier about missing church than mistreating someone at work, you might be trapped in temple model thinking. If you've ever believed that there is a ritual that makes you right with God and removes your responsibility to make restitution to the person that you've harmed, you might be trapped in temple model thinking. If other people's sin elicit feelings of moral superiority rather than compassion, you might be trapped in temple model thinking. Here's the last one. If your beliefs have ever gotten in the way of your love, you might be trapped in temple model thinking. You see, all of this thinking centers around this question. What must I do to be made right with God? A great question initially, but not eventually. And in fact, if we continue to hold on to this type of thinking, it's actually going to hold us back and we will never mature in our walk with Jesus. And what's crazy about this, in fact, do you know what drives most of this temple model thinking? Is that most of us, including myself, we have not fully embraced the gospel. Because the gospel says that Jesus died for you and someone who will die for you is for you. And God, if you have put your trust in him, if you have believed in the gospel and Jesus's work on the cross, you have to understand this at a heart level. God is good with you. And if we can fully embrace that, then we can begin to take our eyes off of ourselves and onto others. Galatians 5.1. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by this temple model religion. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by this yoke of slavery. And friends, there is good news. There's another way. It's the Jesus model. It's his church. And that's where we're going to go to next. If you're taking notes, this is the Jesus model. The Jesus model, where the temple model is all about me, the Jesus model is all about others. The Jesus model is all about others. Because following Jesus is an invitation to leave what's all about me and embrace what's all about others. And if you can take just this one idea, if you can take this idea that the Jesus model, his church is about other people and use it as a lens, use it as a filter in which you read scripture, scripture will come to alive to you in ways that you would have never even imagined. Because throughout the New Testament, we are invited to love people the way our Heavenly Father loved them. And really, that's what it's all about. That's why Jesus could say these words. This is my one commandment. How many commandments do you have? Ten commandments? No, no, that was Moses. Jesus says, this is my one commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. This is why the Apostle Paul could get by with saying this, the only thing that counts. Wait a minute, the only thing? H have you seen how thick a Bible is? And Paul's like, yeah, I I've seen it. I wrote most of the New Testament. But I still say the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love, Galatians 5, 6. This is why Paul could also, again, quote what Jesus said when he said this, the entire law, all 630, 
30 commandments, the whole thing is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. See, when it's all said and done, friends, the Jesus model, his church, it's all about one thing. And that one thing is love. It's love. See, this is what you need to understand now. That, that this model, this Jesus model, his church founded on love, this represents a complete departure from temple model thinking. This represents a 100% departure from temple thinking. This is not temple model 2.0. This isn't let's take the best of both. No, this is something brand new. Now, friends, this temple model, this, sorry, this Jesus model question, it centers around, sorry, this Jesus model centers around this question. It's one question where the temple model centers around what must I do to be made right with God? The Jesus model centers around another question. And that question is this, what does love require of me? What does love require? The temple model, what must I do to be made right with God? Great question initially, not eventually. Jesus model, eyes off of ourselves onto others. What does love require of me? And again, if we can use this question as a lens in which we look at Scripture, Scripture is going to come alive to us. In fact, what I want to do right now is just illustrate that. We're going to look at three different New Testament imperatives. New Testament imperatives are simply commands we see in the New Testament. But we're going to read it through the lens of this big question, what does love require of me, and see how it changes Scripture. Here's the first imperative. It's the imperative to tell the truth. There are actually 15 verses in the New Testament about telling the truth. But do you know why you should tell the truth? You probably say, oh, yeah, I know why we should tell the truth, because in the Bible it says tell the truth. And if God put it in the Bible, then we better do it, right? That's actually not right. Well, that's true. It's not the right answer. Do you know why you should tell the truth? See, temple thinking says you tell the truth because the text says tell the truth. But the Jesus model says you tell the truth because when you lie, and again, we're putting on this lens of others first. When we put on this lens, we see that the reason we tell the truth is because when we lie, we hurt the person we lie to. The Jesus model says the reason you don't lie is because when you lie, you're covering yourself at someone else's expense. When you lie, you're saying to the person that you lied to, you are not worthy of the truth. Whatever is best for you is secondary to what's best for me. Temple says, I'm going to tell the truth so God will love me. But Jesus says, no, you tell the truth because you love people. You see, it's a completely different lens. What does love require of me? It takes the focus off us and on to others. Here's another one. The imperative to be generous. There are 47 Bible verses in the New Testament about the importance of generosity. But do you know why we're supposed to be generous? Oh, I know, right? Because like uh, the Bible says that if I give God a dollar, then he'll give me 10 back, right? Uh, no, that's not it. See, we live in the United States. 
We already have $10. Uh, You were born with $10. So we are so far ahead. Pastor Mike, he's actually in Kenya right now, and he's working with street kids who live under doorways and eat from dumpsters. You have to understand that just because you live in the United States, you are already immensely blessed. But, But why should we give? Well, we're supposed to give because if we give, then God will give to us and and God will bless us because something about cheerful givers, right? No, 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 no. That's not the answer. It's way more simple than that. Do you know why we're supposed to be generous? This is real, real simple. I'm going to slow down. The reason we are supposed to be generous is because when we are generous, it helps the people we're generous towards. When we are generous, it helps the person on the receiving end of our generosity. Again, new lens, others focused. Here's the third one. It's about pressuring people sexually. In fact, there are 21 verses in the New Testament alone about premarital sex. But do you know why you should not pressure your boyfriend or girlfriend sexually? Oh yeah, I know, right? Like, it's an easy one. Cause like the Bible says that sex is for married people, right? No, that's not it. Do you know why you shouldn't pressure your boyfriend or girlfriend sexually? Yeah, because if I do bad things morally, my my life isn't going to work out. I'm going to pray the price later and there's going to be all these consequences. No, that's actually not it. Although that might be true. The reason, the reason you don't pressure your boyfriend or girlfriend sexually is because when you pressure another person to do something they don't want to do, you create a regret for them. And Christians, Christ followers, do not, rec- do not create regrets for other people. They don't do that. That's not what we do. In other words, to follow Jesus means when somebody tells the story about their greatest regret, they don't think about you. You're not a part of the counseling session when they're in counseling. You're not a part of the story when they finally meet the person they want to spend the rest of their life with. Because in that moment, when you were tempted to pressure them sexually, you realize, wait a minute, I don't even need a verse for this. Because if I'm trying to impose my will on someone else, that's not love your neighbor as yourself. That's love yourself at the expense of your neighbor. Again, Totally different lens. What does love require of me? So here's the bottom line. These New Testament imperatives, again, all these commands that we see in the New Testament, they are simply examples. And I need you to understand that. These are just simply examples. And God didn't give us an example for everything because God didn't need to give us an example for everything. The New Testament imperatives are simply examples of how to demonstrate your love for God by loving others. But this is why, and this is what causes people to look for loopholes and workarounds, right? They they say things like, well, does the Bible really say this or say that? I don't even think the Bible talks to this issue. No, no, no. And God's like in heaven as he's hearing us try to find a loophole with scripture here and find a workaround here. He's like, wait, 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 I wasn't trying to give you a word for every single situation. I was simply trying to give you examples in which to live by, in which you can see. But it all boils down to this one big idea of love. He didn't try to cover everything. He was just trying to give you specific examples of what it means to love other people in demonstration of how much you love 
your heavenly Father. In fact, Jesus said these words, and this was so extreme. This was a game changer when he told this to the first century followers of him. He said, the entire Old Testament, all the laws and all the prophets hung on these two ideas. Number one, love God. Number two, love your neighbor. The entire Old Testament. And when you read the apostles Paul and Peter and all the teachings of the New Testament, everything is simply an example of, everything is simply an illustration of, everything is simply commentary on, everything is simply application of what it looks like to love God by loving your neighbor. Friends, it all boils down to one word, love. So while the temple model centers around the question, what must I do to be made right with God? It's a great question initially, not eventually. Jesus' model centers around the question, what does love require of me? And if you think all of this love talk is just too simple, you think this is just watered down gospel, let me remind you, that when your heavenly father answered this question, what does love require of me? It cost him his son. And when your savior answered this question, what does love require of me? It cost him his life. So what does love require of us? You see, this Jesus model, it's really, really simple. But it's far from everything, it, but it's far from easy. The Jesus model is far more simple than the temple model, but it is far from easy because it's all about love. But what does love require of me? Well, friends, the answer is simply this, everything. It's rather easy. It's rather simple to understand and comprehend, much harder to act out. So the question we need to ask ourselves is what does love require of us? Does it require? Does it require us hopping on a plane and leveraging our gifts for the advancement of this kingdom? Maybe. Does it require us hopping in the car and leveraging our gifts to bless our city? Maybe. Does it require walking across this room and starting the reconciliation process with someone you've hurt? Maybe. Does it require sacrificing a few lattes this week in order to send a student to camp? Maybe. Does it mean sacrificing a career God called you out of long ago? Maybe. Does it mean striking up a mentorship with an Eastside Academy student? Maybe. Does it mean striking up a spiritual conversation with another mom at the park? Maybe. Does it mean showing up to dinner on time because your family is more important than your email stream? Maybe. Does it mean showing up to church on a regular basis because people miss out when you miss? Maybe. What does love require of me? See, I don't know what love requires of all of us in this room, but I know that God is speaking in this place and he's speaking to your heart at an individual level. And as you ask yourself that question, there is promptings in your mind and in your heart right now. And that's a question you have to answer. Yesterday, I was at a wedding for my buddy Jeff. And while we were in the little groom's room, scrolling through Facebook, and I saw an article on the shooting in Charleston, I don't know if you guys saw this, but yesterday, some of the victims' families got to see um, their son or daughter or grandfather or mother's killer 
and they got to actually talk to him. And one lady in particular, her name was Ethel Lance. What did love require of her? Well, she got in front of her son's killer and she said, I forgive you. You hurt me so bad, but I forgive you. What does love require of me? Friends, this is a simple concept, but man, it's so hard. It's one thing to ask the question. It's another thing to act upon it. Pastor Josh sent me this quote. It says, love in action is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love in dreams. Love in action is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love in dreams. Again, it's one thing to ask this question. It's another thing to act it out. So to conclude, I want to go back to A.W. Milne. A.W. Milne, he did hop on that ship, but you have to know there's a backstory to it. Four of his good friends had gone on mission trips to that small little island before him. Each one of them was beheaded, killed. In fact, they were even eaten because it was an island full of cannibals. And yet I think as I look back on this, he had to be asking himself this question. Well, what does love require of me? And when God spoke to him as an individual, his answer to him was, you got to go on a ship and you got to pack your belongings in a coffin and where you're going, you're going to give your life. But where your brothers in Christ went before you, I'm calling you towards. And it's a real simple thing to maybe comprehend, but my God, it's going to be so hard to live out. But I wonder if we start asking the question that A.W. Milne asked, that Ethel Lance asked yesterday, if we could start asking that question in an everyday instance, I start to think, man, what would that look like? Can you imagine if each and every day we ask the question, what does love require of me? In every instance, in every conversation, in every little place of influence we have, what does love require of me? If we could get to that place, and if we could do it for the long haul, I bet you that people would write about you. They would write about me. They would write about us as God's ecclesia, his called out body. They would write words similar to when he came. And when they came, there was no light. But when they left, there was no darkness. Let's pray. Jesus, Lord, we're so thankful for your Holy Spirit, and we're so thankful for its promptings. We're thankful for your word today, which informed us, but I pray that we wouldn't just take information in today. No, that your Holy Spirit would do a work on that information in our head and actually turn it to transformation in our lives. I do pray that on this Father's Day, we walk out of this place changed, asking that question, what does love require of me? Lord, I pray that it would become a habit in our lives. And I pray that us as individuals and then collectively as your church, we would ask this question and that we would bear fruit because of it. That you would help this church to be a beacon of light to the east side and beyond, Lord. 
But we know it's simple, but it's not easy. It's simple to comprehend, but it's not easy. So we need your help. So Holy Spirit, would you empower us? Would you guide us? Would you help us in this venture? Lord, we love you. And it's in your name we pray. And everybody said, amen.